and welcome back to the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren, I'm the dog, and with me is Mark, who is the duck. And uh, wow, we, uh, it's a Tuesday afternoon, and uh, this morning we got some mega dog news to discuss. Uh, but let's just dive in by uh, talking a little bit of uh, dogs and ducks, and we're going to get into some NFL divisional round playoffs and reviews. And we've got the Marks moment and stat of the week up ahead. So thanks for joining us. Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Warren. Uh, I think my bigger question is, is where are you doing? Because if anybody's viewing this on YouTube, they will see that uh, you are not in your normal location. Uh, so so uh, for those viewers who are, who are catching this on YouTube, uh, could you tell us where you are? Absolutely. Yeah. So for those of you who are listening to our podcast, I am in my daughter's bedroom and behind me on the wall is her blue guitar, her red guitar, uh, uh, an illuminated star, uh, a, a multicolored sheet, some photos hanging, Christmas lights, motivational quotes posted on the wall. Um, it's the whole Pinterest spectacular going on in her room, but it happens to be the one place that I can record this podcast with a low frequency of interruption. It so looks I, great. It looks like rest. your daughter has a great sense of style, a great sense of, you know, aesthetic inside. So, um, yeah, well done. She does. She does. She's, she's the Pinterest queen and, uh, she's got, she's got boards for everything. So, um, yeah, well, let's let's turn the, the the topic of conversation from Pinterest to some college football, particularly the University of Washington. My dogs received a dagger to the heart yesterday evening when news began to to come out that uh, longtime Washington defensive coordinator Pete Kwiatkowski is going to serve with Steve Sarkeesian on his staff at the University of Texas. A massive pickup for Steve and the Longhorns and a devastating loss for uh, the Washington Huskies and their hopes of continuing to, to, to rebound and to regain their dominance in the Pac-12. Now, Warren, you're going to have to answer a question for me here as a as, uh you know, not a Washington fan. Uh, Washington fans seem to be taking this departure much harder than I would have assumed because Jimmy Lake's background is as a defensive coach, was it not? Yeah, so that's a great question. And just to kind of recap a little bit of the history, when Steve Sarkeesian left, it opened the door for us to bring in uh, Coach Peterson, Chris Peterson, and that was a massive win for the Huskies. As, as much as Sarkeesian did for the program, getting them out of 0-12 to a couple of uh, more than eight win seasons was a big turnaround, and Sarkeesian deserves a lot of credit for that. But I think everybody felt like it was an upgrade from Sarkeesian, where he was at in that point of his career, to Chris Peterson and where he was at in his career and so when Peterson came from Boise State to the University of Washington, he brought with him 
his defensive coordinator, Pete Kwiatkowski, and on that staff was an up-and-coming hot coaching prospect by the name of Jimmy Lake. At the time, Jimmy Lake was the, the defensive back coach, and he made his mark in recruiting. He made his mark by developing some guys that are now in the NFL, like Buda Baker, Sidney Jones, Kevin King, and uh, and several others that are that are in, in the the NFL at this point. But over time, they they added uh, Jimmy Lake's responsibilities to include co-defensive coordinator. And then Mark, last year, Pete Kwiatkowski actually stepped down as the play caller to allow Jimmy Lake to be the primary defensive coordinating play caller. And that was a, a incredible story of humility and sacrifice by Kwiatkowski to do that, to allow this hot prospect in Jimmy Lake to, to continue to stay in the program, to keep, uh, quite, to keep Lake from leaving and going to an Alabama or another uh, big name program. And everybody thought that that was because Kwiatkowski was so committed to this program that he was willing to even take uh, a demotion in order to keep this thing moving forward. Well, of course, fast forward, we had a, 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 a disappointing season last year. That is 2019. And uh, at the end of the year, we were all shocked to learn that Chris Peterson was going to step down. And as a result, Jimmy Lake became the head coach, which actually restored Coach Kwiatkowski back to the defensive coordinator role. Now, Mark, if you'll remember in 2019, the Oregon Ducks under Andy Avalos were number one in the Pac-12 for total defense. That was the one year that Jimmy Lake was the defensive coordinator. <laughs> in the previous four years, four years in a row, from 2015 to 2018, the Huskies led the Pac-12 in, in total defense under Coach Kwiatkowski. So you can kind of see how we we felt like it was a, a, a win-win to move Jimmy Lake up to head coach. Obviously, we would have loved to have kept uh, Chris Peterson, but if he's going to go, take Jimmy Lake with his unique abilities up to the head coach, but then put Coach Kwiatkowski back in the place where he was really thriving. So this is a big hit, I think, for most Husky fans that follow uh, the football team closely. Yeah, this is uh, this is a lot more than uh, I, as an outsider, really really knew. I didn't realize the the shifting of responsibilities there. And uh, and I think as a as a Duck fan who is also uh, needing a defensive coordinator right now, I find this to be both delightful news that you're <laughs> losing a defensive coordinator that you love so much, and at the same time, it's also kind of terrifying because now it's there's another team in the same region of the country that's going to be actively looking for, you know, a defensive coordinator. Uh, so really interesting development here for Washington. Really it is. And, and, and one point that I failed to mention is that in 2020, the season that we just completed abbreviated as it was, the Huskies were once again, the leading defense in the PAC 12 under the play calling of coach Kwiatkowski. So in the last six years, um, 
all five of those years that Kwiatkowski was pl- doing the defensive play calling, the Huskies led the Pac-12 in total defense. So, you know, it's it it's not an overstatement to say that in some ways this is equal to the the loss of losing a Chris Peterson because we we essentially lost the best defensive coordinator in the Pac-12 to Texas and Steve Sarkeesian. Wow. Wow. So where do we go from here? Uh, to be honest, Mark, I don't know. We haven't really had a lot of time to research who some of those hot prospects are. At least I haven't. Yeah. Uh, at least what the Huskies are kind of thinking that might look like. But you bring up an interesting question, and that is, what's the better opportunity? You know, if you're if you're a hot prospect as a defensive coordinator, you're up and coming. Maybe you've you've proven that you can do it on uh, another level and now you're ready to take it to the, the PAC 12. Um, what's, what's the better, what's the better opportunity UW or Oregon? I'd love to hear your thoughts first. Well, if I'm, if I'm trying to take myself out of the equation here and if I'm trying to look at it objectively in terms of if, if this was a friend of mine who's coming to me and he's, and he's presenting these two options, you know, where would I think about, encouraging him to go. I think, um, you know, Jimmy Lake's background as a defensive coach, I think could be a selling point that could be a, Hey, you can go here and, and learn from a guy who's a great, you know, defensive coach in his own right. He's going to really, you know, value that side of the ball and it's going to be a priority there. They've got this long history now of established history of having the best defense in the conference on the other side, you know, um, the, the advantage, I think, in going to Oregon, where Cristobal is kind of more focused on the offensive side, is, is you might just have a little more ownership, a little more freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's less uh, potential that you and the coach are going to have kind of a, a jockeying back and forth where maybe you're not quite on the same page. And so I almost, I almost look at it whereas if I was a young up-and-comer who's kind of just establishing myself, and this is a big leap, mm-hmm. then maybe to take the Washington – job whereas if i if i was maybe a a uh, a former head coach who's maybe looking for a coordinator job or something like that um that maybe the oregon job where i can just kind of have my own um thing going on that 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 might be a little more attractive there's certainly arguments for both sides washington as you mentioned has has recent history on their side you know, Oregon has these highly touted recruiting classes and some some mm-hmm. young guys that were highly touted on the roster right now. So, um, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see who both teams uh, go after because I, I think both jobs are going to be very attractive to a lot of people. I agree. I mean, both teams have incredible backing and support. Uh, they both have a lot of talent on the defensive side both in recruiting and in actual production on the field. And uh, they've got, they've got tremendous facilities and a lot of positive, you know, things to look forward to. Uh, It's interesting that you say that for Jimmy Lake, uh, that he might be better off with a younger defensive coordinator an up and comer. And I, I guess it's a philosophy thing and you could, you could kind of pick your poison, but, um, if you're a younger coach, 
do you want a coordinator who's younger and less experienced than you? Or do you want kind of a Sean McVay type of a scenario where when he comes to the Rams, he brings in a guy like Wade Phillips, who yeah. you know has decades of experience and just says, hey, you take this and run with it. I don't know the answer to that, but it seems like it, it, you know you could you could e- easily form a, a, a narrative for either one of those philosophies. Yeah, I think mainly I was thinking is that if if Jimmy Lake is a guy who's had past experience calling the defensive signals, is he going to in any way uh, want to take that over if he sees kind of things waffling a little bit? Whereas that that's not a possibility with. Cristobal being an offensive guy right you know so that 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 was the only thought that I had but I think you're right sometimes sometimes a younger coach you know certainly benefits from kind of having an old hand on board and and if it if it's the right temperament then then they probably wouldn't be threatened by having uh someone with Jimmy Lake's experience also coaching the team well that's good stuff uh in other uh news and this pales in comparison to the the P. Kwiatkowski news, but uh, as is the season after the college football uh, national championship game, everybody and their sister and brother comes out with their way too early top 25 list. And uh, we've seen both the Ducks and the, the Dogs, the Huskies, rank all over the map with some of those. I think some as high as maybe nine or seven to not being ranked at all. ESPN has USC ranked at number nine, Oregon at number 13, and Washington at number 14. Mark, I'm not sure what I think about USC at number nine, but 13 and 14 seems about right to me for the the dogs and the ducks. What What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, um, I, I agree with you that, that uh, I mean, it's the USC name. They've got a returning quarterback who was all conference last year. So if you're a big believer in Keaton Slovis, I guess, I guess you could rank them up high. I would, I would, I would think if you're a duck, you're not a believer in Keaton Slovis I, I, based I on this game. Yeah, yeah. I would be, I would be surprised if USC were to beat either Oregon or Washington in a Pac-12 championship game. And I'd be even a little surprised if they make it back to the Pac-12 championship game, just because yeah. they haven't really shown a history to repeat success recently. But uh, yeah, I think if you told me that Oregon is going to be somewhere in the top 15, that Washington will be somewhere in the top 15, I think that's reasonable. I I don't think there are, is another Pac-12 school that's missing from that list. I think those are the three that just based on the past couple of years and based on the rosters they have coming back, you would expect to be in the mix right off the bat. You know, maybe Utah sneaks in there, maybe mm-hmm. Stanford sneaks in there, but, but you also never really quite know with those schools. So uh, I don't put a whole lot of, of stock in these, uh, these preseason expectations. You know, I think for Oregon, it's uh, there are probably four different guys. I could envision them starting a quarterback uh, for the season opener next September, uh, including the two guys that got the majority of snaps at the end of the season this year. So that's the big ticket for me is how, how does spring practice go? How does mini camps in the, in the summer go? And, and does somebody really emerge as a confident starting quarterback coming into the season? And if that happens, um, I think 13 is right about right. And, and maybe even a little low for where this team could go. 
Yeah, I agree. I think um, there's there's plenty to be optimistic about uh, for both teams. And I do think that Oregon or Washington will be the class of the Pac-12 and will represent the Pac-12 in whatever premier bowl game they end up in. Uh, but, you know, to me, USC seems to be grossly over overestimated as usual. I would not be surprised if USC falls to uh, Utah, Arizona State, potentially even Colorado UCLA. next year. Yep. UCLA, absolutely. That's always uh, a real possibility for them. Uh, so, yeah, I think I, I am grateful that ESPN realized that there is college football on the West Coast and <laughs> – took a moment to do a little research and realized that uh, there might be some reason for optimism for the Ducks and the Dogs next year. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, hey, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk NFL football with our special guest, Zach Whitlow. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the Dog and Duck Show. Uh, with me, as always, of course, is my co-host, Mark Schmore, and our special NFL analyst, Zach Whitlow. Zach, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, let's dive right into the NFL Divisional Round recap. Uh, looking at the AFC first, the Buffalo Bills defeated the Baltimore Ravens 17-3. to uh, This game was a little bit closer than the score might have revealed the turning point, of course, being uh, Taron Johnson's 100-yard interception return that turned what was appearing to look like a touchdown drive for the Ravens to tie the game at 10-10, turned the game into a 17-3, 14-point differential. Uh, Mark, what were your thoughts about the game uh, as you as you you know, watched it? Well, you know, I, I was, I, I think, pleasantly surprised by how well the defense has played throughout. Uh, it really was a defensive slugfest throughout. Um, as far as the, uh, you know, it really came down to that that one play. Baltimore statistically was the better team in terms of yardage and time of possession and, and all yards per play and all that other stuff. Baltimore moved the ball more effectively throughout the game, but but when you have a 100 yard interception return in a defensive slugfest, it's essentially a 14 point play. And I was, I was trying to think like, is there a play more enjoyable just from a pure sports watching perspective? The only one I, I would put up with it is like an inside the park home run, I think is, hmm. is just about as entertaining, like start to finish. But in terms of like the result of the play, like, cause if you're intercepting a pass in the end zone, that's a gut punch right there for the offensive team. And then when they turn and start to run the other way, and it's the question of, oh, does somebody have the angle on them? Oh, they're going to get pushed out of bounds. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. You know, it looks like. So I just think uh, anytime we have one of those plays, I just have to stop and go like, there's something incredibly thrilling about a 100-yard interception return, especially in a playoff game. We've only had four of them in, in playoff history. And so uh, – yeah, it was it was a great play by Taron Johnson, who only had uh, I believe two career interceptions going into that play. Yeah, fantastic! And by the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know 
Uh, Mark, in addition to the, the dog and duck show, has his own website and blog called Mark's Moments. He publishes articles that are just fantastic. And you did a, an article specifically on this game and specifically on the subject of remarkable 100-yard uh, touchdown returns. The one that I really remember so vividly is the, the one with the, the Steelers and uh, the Arizona Cardinals in the Super Bowl. Uh, James Harrison picking off Kurt Warner at the end of the first half of the game. And that was a massive turning point that ultimately, I think, cost the, uh, the Cardinals that Super Bowl. Uh, but maybe walk us through, Mark, a couple of the other more well-known interception returns. Well, so yeah, so there have been four in history. Teron Johnson's was the fourth. You mentioned James Harrison. James Harrison's was the only one that wasn't a defensive back. He was, he was a linebacker, which <laughs> meant that it was drama the entire way down the field as to whether or not he was going to get tackled. The Cardinals had like three different chances to get him yeah. down. Uh, the clock ran out for the first half as he entered the end zone. So if he didn't score there and got knocked out of bounds at the one, conceivably they just wouldn't have scored at all. Um, so the other two was, uh, the first one was George Teague, who was a rookie for the Detroit Lions in a playoff game, a wild card game against the Packers. It's remembered as kind of the Sterling Sharp game back. Uh, he had three touchdowns in that game, kind of a brief shining point in his career before an injury. Barry Sanders had a great game, but it, George Teague had a hundred yard interception return in the middle of that game. And then the other one was, um, and this one I'd forgotten about, but Champ Bailey, of the Denver Broncos picked off Tom Brady and ran it back a hundred yards. He actually got pushed out just before the goal line. And then they scored the next play. And that Broncos team, that, the Patriots were two time defending champs. That Broncos team led by Jake Plummer knocked them out of the playoffs. And then Warren, you'll remember this. Uh, that was the year that then the Steelers knocked out the Broncos ended up playing your Seahawks and and winning the Super Bowl is the lowest seeded team I think to ever win a Super Bowl that Pittsburgh Steelers team. So just a funky playoffs, but I had totally forgotten that it was uh, it was the Broncos and Champ Bailey that gave the knockout punch to that Patriots team. It's great. So Zach, uh, as you evaluate the game, if you're a Bills fan, are you more encouraged by how the the, the Bills defense played? or concerned that the Bills offense was really shut down for the majority of the game. What are your thoughts about the game? I think that's a good question. I would say I'd be more encouraged by the Buffalo's defense um, because one thing to take into account is that, first off, that wind that they were dealing with all night, I mean, trying to throw in the wind, you saw many passes by whether it was Allen or Jackson, they just sailed. And some of that just, you know, that's just mother nature. And then also the Ravens, really, if you look at what they did in the offseason, they specifically went and got uh, Calais Campbell. They specifically went and got Derek Wolf to beef up that defense. So the Ravens defense is also the challenge they had all season was just being able to get everybody together. And in this in these recent weeks, this defense really came together. So I think that, you know, uh, much to what Mark was saying, these were really two stout defenses. But, I, but mm -hmm. I would say the biggest thing is that if Buffalo played Baltimore last year. They didn't win against Baltimore. But during Lamar's MVP season when he was just invincible, that was really the only game I wouldn't say he struggled in, but they were at least able to, to kind of begin to figure out a formula 
to, for how to stop this guy. And sometimes I think that teams like they can, we talked about last week with Tampa Bay, how sometimes you learn a lot in a loss. I think back mm-hmm. to several years back when the Giants played the Patriots and the, when the Patriots went undefeated and they played that last game and they lost by three points. The Giants lost that game, but in that game, they got basically a blueprint and said, if we could just maybe do two or three different plays, we know we can beat this team. Fast forward months later to the Super Bowl, they then get their chance and they beat them. And so that's kind of how I thought Buffalo approached this game. They said, we have, uh, we know what we need to do as a defense to be able to try to limit the explosive plays with Jackson. Jackson has that type, that type of speed that, if he gets any angle, he's gone. So what Bo- Buffalo was able to do really well was they said, okay, he can maybe just based on just his athleticism get six, seven yards. What we need to avoid is him breaking off and getting those 40, 50-yard gains where he's hitting his head on the goalpost. And so I think that Buffalo came in really with that, with that mindset. I don't think Lamar's accuracy was the problem. I think – you know, we talked about that interception, but I'm trying to think, you know, the only thing I could think of in terms of a comparable play that I feel like legitimately just completely changed the game was that Steelers interception against the Cardinals, where Baltimore, they are inching towards scoring. And if they score, we're tied and we got ourselves a game. But then that interception, a lot of that really was Lamar just did not see Johnson coming. He just didn't see Johnson underneath. And Johnson gets it and just takes off. And next thing you know, we go from potentially a tied game to now a two-touchdown game. And Lamar had been struggling on Saturday night. Uh, and so I, I definitely tip my hat off to the Buffalo Bills um, defense. And also, before I give it back to you, I think that Buffalo is a team that I don't think really gets a lot of recognition for the way they've built this team into a championship team. If remember two years ago, they had a dude quit on them in halftime of a game and retired. That happened two years ago with Monte Davis, and they were a laughing stock. People were like, they picked this kid from Wyoming, and they were a laughing stock. Sean McDermott, their GM, all that through the draft, through good, smart free agency pickups like Cole Beasley, through that trade that got him, Stefan Diggs. This is a team that, through careful building and patience, is now looking like a team that legitimately has what it takes to win it all. So my hat's off to Sean McDermott and the Buffalo Bills franchise for what they've been able to do in these last few years. Great. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And fantastic uh, just summary of that, uh, Zach. And and I think you're absolutely right. If, if you're a, a Bills fan, I think you have to be encouraged because there are just weeks, there are games – where you've got to find a way to win. You have got to figure out how to win ugly. You're not going to win every game 44 to 27. You've got to find a way to win ugly. The Bills were able to do that against a very good uh, Baltimore Ravens team who had won, what, five, six games in a row going into that game. So they were hot. They had confidence. And uh, they pulled it off. Whether they can do that again next week, that remains – or this weekend, that remains to be seen. But if you're a Bills fan, you got to like what you're seeing from the team as a whole, that they believe that they can win in any circumstance and any with any challenge. Well, let's keep it going. To me, the next game, the AFC uh, game, the Chiefs, the Browns, 
the most intriguing game of this past weekend. I think we all looked at it probably like we did the week before with the Browns and the Steelers, and we thought, there's no way that the Browns are going to be able to stay on the field with these guys. They're outmatched. Uh, They don't have the horses to run with the, the Kansas City Chiefs. And this thing turned into quite the the nail biter if you're a Chiefs fan. Uh, going into the third quarter, or at the end of the third quarter, it looked like the Chiefs were going to run away with it. They were moving the ball with ease, uh, although they seemed to get stymied in the red zone and uh, had to settle for a few field goals. And then the unthinkable happened. Uh, Patrick Mahomes uh, went down with a concussion and in comes backup quarterback Chad Henney. I didn't even know that Chad was still in the league, to be honest. Uh, I had no idea who the backup quarterback was for the, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. And all of a sudden, things begin to heat up for the Cleveland Browns, uh, Mayfield and Chubb and Hunt begin to get things rolling. They, they bring it back. It's 22 to 17 uh, when uh, Chad Henney and his uh, gutsy coach, uh, Andy Reid, I was going to use a different expression, but I'll, I'll use the word gutsy instead, uh, decide to go for it with a fourth and one pass to seal the wind, run out the clock, and to secure uh, another visit to the AFC Championship round. Uh, Zach, what were your thoughts about this game? So it was funny. I'm a, I had to work on Sunday. We had, we're doing book returns and whatnot, so they needed me to work on Sunday. So I'm, watch, I'm working and I'm keeping up with the game, you know. Then I, so then I get notified that Mahomes is out. And I'm thinking to myself, what? <laughs> Mahomes is out? So, you know, I get to where I, my manager knew. So I get to where I'm like <laughs> processing and like kind of keeping my eye on the game and whatnot. And I remember on that fourth and go, on that fourth and one that you're talking about, I like probably many other people are thinking, oh, okay, maybe they're just going to try to draw them upside, run the clock down, yada, yada, yada. So then I see the, the ball snap and I'm like, okay, we're, we're, we're doing this. We're doing this. But I'm like, okay. You got, um, was it Bell or was it Hilaire that was in the backfield at that moment? I couldn't remember which one was in the backfield. I believe it was Bell. Okay, but I'm thinking, okay, you got you got Bell in the backfield. Okay, we're going to just try to run up. And then I see him step back, and I, and I see him like, oh, no. He, then I'm thinking, well, maybe is Henny going to run? And I'm like, I, I don't know much about Henny, but he doesn't strike me as a mobile quarterback. And then I see him pass, and I, my exact thoughts are, <gasps> I, I'm thinking to myself, the Browns are about to win this, and we're going to have the apocalypse of football where the Cleveland Browns and the Buffalo Bills are about to decide who goes to the Super Bowl. And then he completes it, and I'm like, you know, on one hand, it's one of those plays that you're like, afterwards, you're like, man, that was awesome. But my Lord, if that's an incomplete pass, mm-hmm. I truly believe if that does not get converted, I think Cleveland gets down there, and I think they score. I, that's just my belief, but – Hats off to Kansas City. I believe Henny did come in and play last year when Mahomes had those few weeks that he was out. So at least he is a little more familiar with this system and whatnot. But um, kind of what we talked about with with Buffalo 
and how the future looks very bright for them. I believe what Kevin Stefanski's done with the Browns this season, the way he's really been able to get Baker to have that, he's still got that chip on his shoulder, but I think Baker's really maturing into what I yeah. what I need to be a franchise quarterback and to be the leader of my team. I think we really saw that. Again, when you have Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt in your backfield, that's going to help you out a lot. So I think the Browns, especially with the Steelers, we have no idea what the Steelers are going to look like, you know. I think the Browns have got a very legitimate shot in the next few years to be that team to consistently challenge. But, uh, yeah, gutsy is a very good uh, way to call Andy Reid. Um, on one hand, you you appreciate the fact that you trust his team and he has that much confidence. But um, you'd go, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to try that against Buffalo. And I definitely wouldn't want to try that in no Super Bowl against either one of these two teams from the NFC. But, um, you know, Kansas City had to do what they had to do. And, Mark, you mentioned it last week. Down the stretch in the season, Kansas City, they just survived. And sometimes that's all you have to do and figure out the rest later. But they survived and they got it done. So, so Mark, you know, if you're a Browns fan, I'm getting an echo. If, Mark, if you're a Browns fan right now, are you more celebrating the, the first 12 win, you know, playoff win, game season that – that you've had in over a decade, or are you thinking about uh, the potential touchdown that was lost when, uh, you know, Higgins reaches, reached the pylon and, and, you know, the, the ball is knocked out by the helmet of the Kansas city chiefs defender. Are you feeling more robbed or are you feeling more grateful for uh, a great season? I, I'm sure Cleveland fans feel a variety of emotions. I think the predominant feeling should be one of, of gratitude for the season. I don't think anybody looked at Cleveland going into this year and thought they were in store for the type of season that they had. I think to win the number of games that they did to win a playoff game in really um, dominant fashion against the Steelers, you know, your, your bitter rival, um, I think, and, and similar to what Zach said, I mean, they've, they've got so many young players coming back. I just think if you're a Cleveland fan, you have to look at this as an unqualified success. Of course, when you're thinking about this game, you're thinking about, ah, uh, you know, I hate that pylon rule, <laughs> like fumble, fumbling out of bounds in the end zone. I hate that rule or, or man, why did he reach for it? He should have just gone down at the two yard line and we would have scored. Or you're thinking about, you know, the final drive that the Browns had, they picked up 12 yards on seven plays. Like they just couldn't move the ball at all. And this yeah. unheralded Kansas city defense really came through, or you're thinking we had a third and 14 with their backup quarterback and we let him run basically for the, almost for the first down. Like there's so many different things about this game that I'm sure you can, you can drive yourself crazy with, but you have to set all that aside at some point and say, Hey, this was, this was a successful season. This is the most dysfunctional franchise in football. It had been 20 some years since they won a playoff game, you know? Um, so absolutely a successful season for the Browns, but you know, the Browns also have a history of finding excruciating ways to lose in the playoffs. So this, <laughs> this is consistent with the Marty Schottenheimer era and, and everything else we've seen from Cleveland. Yeah, I'm sure Bernie Kozar could identify with uh, some of the, the feelings that Baker May, Mayfield was experiencing. This, this has got to be, too, one of Andy Reid's best playoff coaching 
games. I mean, really, to to lose the best player in the NFL, a future Hall of Famer, at a, a moment like they did, and really to coach the team to victory by Reed is truly remarkable. So all credit goes to him. And it'll be interesting to see what Mahomes' status is going into the game. I'm not sure if there's been any news released on that. Have you guys heard anything about? I don't think we'll know for a few days. Okay. So we'll keep an eye on that, and we'll talk about that that game uh, this weekend in just a few minutes. Moving on to the NFC. Uh, Can I jump in? Can I jump in? Yeah, please. Real quick. We, you know, we've talked about the uh, the end of the game, I think, is what people will remember. Henny's scramble on third and long and then the fourth down pass to Tyreek Hill. But I think Andy Reid set a really important tone. When Henny first came in the game, when Mahomes went down, it was a fourth down. It was a fourth and one. And if you were listening, Tony Romo, who loves to predict plays ahead of time, says yeah. they're, the only thing they're going to do here is a quarterback sneak or just a basic handoff. And that's understandable. You have a backup quarterback. He hasn't played. He's literally taking warm-up snaps on the field while they're getting Mahomes taken off. Like right. the last thing you're going to try to do is something exotic, you know, for a guy that's coming in cold like that. Just right. run a quarterback sneak, run a basic handoff, pick up the first down, and then maybe you do something. And what Andy Reid does is he shifts around the formation. He's got multiple guys that change their position right before the snap. Henny takes it and turns to his right and then pitches to his left. So they run this like misdirection play where he's pitching behind himself to the running back who then beats the corner. Daryl Williams beats the corner, picks up 12 yards and, uh, and they pick up the first down. They end up getting a field goal on that drive. But I think the, the tone that was set with that play call from Andy Reed is we're still going for it here. Like it's, it's the type of play he would have run with Mahomes in the game. He didn't just go vanilla just because he had his backup quarterback. And I actually think that was a huge, uh, you know, mental thing for what he's communicating to his players for that fourth quarter is essentially, Hey, we're still playing to win the game. And how many times have all of us seen some of our favorite teams get into this mode where they're trying to protect a lead and they just go the most conservative route possible. And you just kind of watch them give away a game because they're unwilling to take a risk. I think from the moment Henny came in the game, Andy Reid showed he had confidence in him to do everything he was asking Mahomes to do. And um, yeah, it was a great, great outcome for Kansas City. Absolutely. And, you know, as Herm Edwards famously said, you play to win the game. And uh, definitely that's what Reid did. I love the quote I, I read or heard from Reid later on. He said, he said, I'm from BYU. Every down is a passing down. Yeah. Uh, so, I, yeah, I got a kick out of that. Well, let's move on to the NFC, talk about the Packers versus the Rams. Uh, for all of the intrigue of the Chiefs and Browns game, I think this game was probably the most predictable of all of the games that we saw this past weekend. The Packers uh, defeat the Rams 32-18. to Interestingly, uh, after getting five sacks against Russell Wilson, the Seattle Seahawks, Aaron Rodgers uh, was comfortable. He had his legs kicked up. He was smoking a cigar and drinking a beer and uh, just having the time of his life back there. The Packers cruise, uh, not a lot to say. What are your thoughts about the game guys? Um, I think that 
Uh, can't say enough about Aaron Rodgers and what he's done. I said, um, I think it was a, one of my takeaways a few weeks ago that I, I don't know if I'm going to, if I'm so quick to say that Devontae Adams is the best receiver in the game, but I can most certainly assure you that he is playing at the highest level of any of the receivers in the game. And the rapport that him and Rodgers have right now, I would say is the best rapport of quarterback to receiver in the league right now, as we see, uh, as we saw evident. Um, one thing that, I, that I'm really interested in is, um, so Green Bay is going to play next week. If the Packers win this game and go to the Super Bowl, look at who the last three representatives of the NFC have been in the last three Super Bowls. Sean McAvey, and then last year, Kyle Shanahan, and then potentially this year, Matt LaFleur, which begs me two questions. First of all, Washington, how the heck did you have all three of these guys on your staff, yet you wanted to keep Jay Gruden? That's neither here nor there. But secondly, I think... It's interesting because then on the other side, you, we, we've seen, you know, the Belichicks and the, and the Andy Reeds, the Pete Carrolls, the Mike Tomlin, the, the experienced guys. But we're really seeing some teams, if you put the coach in the right situation, we are starting to see these young, innovative offensive minds have success. And think about it, the Packers went 13-3 last year. Um, so I think that this relationship with LaFleur, Rodgers, I had my questions and last year. I was like, you know, there's only maybe, what, two years of difference between these guys. You know, you're this young rookie coach, and you're going to one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. But then it didn't help when they drafted Jordan Love this year. But they were literally the anti-Eagles. That draft completely shattered poor Carson Wentz. I don't know <laughs> if maybe Aaron Rodgers saw them maybe look in the other direction and saw the young kid come along and say, not yet, young kid. I don't know, but um, whatever it is, this Packers team, it's literally what Aaron Rodgers has always wanted. He wanted an NFC championship game in Lambeau Field, and now he's getting his wish. So Green Bay, I just think the way they're playing right now, I just – I don't see any way you're stopping this team right now. Yeah, Zach, I agree with what you said about uh, the Rodgers and Devontae Adams. I was trying to think – through I mean I think the gold standard for the quarterback receiver combo has got to be Montana and Rice you know there was that year especially that Brady and Randy Moss had when they you know almost went undefeated um that sticks out um maybe a Peyton Manning Marvin Harrison year or something mm -hmm. but I mean it's a it's a pretty short list where it feels like the best quarterback and the best receiver in the league are just kind of in sync with one another and and like you, I don't, I don't know if Devonte Adams is the best or the second or the third best, you know, there's a few other guys that you could throw around in that conversation, but he, his ceiling is as high as anyone. And it's just, it's really, really special to watch the two of them, two of them work together. Well said, well said. Yeah. Another just interesting insight. I believe this past weekend um, was the first game where the, uh, am I correct in understanding that this is the first game that the the, the Packers were able to have uh, 6,500 fans there yeah, for the so. game? Uh, and I know that 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 really sparked Aaron Rodgers, and and I think he's excited to be able to go into this next game knowing that there are uh, you know more than just a couple hundred of fans in the stand, stands for uh, for the championship game. And then, of course, we had the Jurassic Bowl, the, the History Bowl, uh, the Geriatric Bowl, 
That is, of course, the game between the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the New Orleans Saints. Uh, it, it, it went in many ways uh, like we, we thought it might in that we talked about last week how difficult it would be for Drew Brees and the New Orleans Saints to win against uh, Brady and the Bucks for the third time in the season how really difficult that is to pull off. And as we thought, um, it was too much for them to overcome. The Buccaneers uh, won 30 to 20 against the Saints. Um, and uh, Breeze really struggled with uh, three picks. And it looks like this could be uh, Breeze's last game. So what, what are your guys' take on this game? So, Warren, you know I'm a big pro wrestling fan, and I compare this, watching Breeze in this game, I compare this to a few years ago watching The Undertaker. You know, it's like he's this amazing legend, but you're watching him, and it's it becomes painfully obvious he just does not have it anymore. And you don't, you want to respect him in all of his greatness. This by no means, you know, changes my view of Drew Brees and his greatness, but it just came down to it where Tom Brady looks like he is stiffing father time. Drew Brees, he looked like he was 42 years old. And it's yeah. all now, hey, let me let me just butt in on that for just a second, Zach, because you know it's interesting because to start the season, the the Saints and the Bucks played, and Tom Brady looked ancient i mean he i mean everybody wrote tom brady off after the first game of the season between the bucks and the saints and you know let's be fair to breeze the dude had broken ribs a collapsed lung um i mean you know his body surely was seriously in need of some rest and recuperation so is it fair to to, to, to look at that game after all of the physical punishment that Breeze endured over the last several weeks and say, this is a guy that's done? I think that you do, you, you add, you do want to account for, yes, the physical toll that, yes, that, that definitely his physical um, um, body was definitely shot. But then that also leads to the other side, though, is that, I mean, at this stage of his career, he his they've done a good job of getting um, enough weapons in the line around him. They've done a good job, but can he? Is he still capable of being um, that quarterback? Because if you get one clean shot on the guy, you know I can't risk like having anything possibly happen to him at that point. So so yes, you're right. Yes, obviously, physically, when you have a busted when you have busted ribs a few just what two months ago, obviously yes, your physical um, your physical being is going to be a lot more limited. But then also, I got to ask myself now, going forward, can I trust if, if again, I don't wish that upon Breeze, obviously. No. No, but, like, one, all, one blindside hit is that, you know, did, can Breeze take that? And so that's the one question. But uh, all that to say that about the Saints, the biggest takeaway I had wasn't just that. The biggest takeaway I had is that Devin White is a man amongst boys because every single play, I literally almost every time I'm watching the game, 
whether he's either disrupting a pass, he's causing a fumble, he's rushing the quarterback, he's everywhere on the field. And he was that X, he was one of those X factors for that Tampa Bay defense because I still do have a few questions marks about the back end. But Devin White, if he comes out and he flashes like he did on, on Sunday, that is a man amongst boys right there. Zach, Devin White, an interception, 11 tackles, a tackle for loss and a fumble recovery. So I mean, that's, that's a monster game. Um, and I think, and I think that speaks to really what this game was about. I mean, the storyline going in was, was Brady and breeze and Brady has another chance to go to yet another mm-hmm. Super Bowl. but you know, Tom Brady threw for less than 200 yards in this game. This wasn't vintage Tom Brady either, but what it was, was a Tampa Bay defense that had an incredible game plan Obviously, they pick off Drew Brees three times. They he, he they give him his worst playoff performance of his career. But the stat that sticks out to me for the Tampa defense, Michael Thomas targeted four times, zero receptions, zero yards. You know, the antithesis to Devontae Adams is uh, is the performance that Michael Thomas had. And uh, and I think that's the story for Tampa Bay is that they, they, their defense um, made things much easier uh, for Brady than, than it could have been. And they're going to have to do that again. If they have any chance against the Packers, they're going to have to play lights out against an even better offense. Yeah. You know, just circling back to the the conversation around Drew Brees. um, You know, I think that, that there was a play that happened two weeks ago that really caught my attention that I think may give us a little bit of insight as to where Drew Brees was at going into this game against the Bucks at the end of the game against the Chicago bears, which they pretty much had the game in hand, but uh, Brees had the opportunity to go in on a, a, a one yard quarterback sneak into the end zone. And if you watch the, the replay of that play, he he got the snap. He, he stretched his hands out above the offensive lineman towards the goal line. But before the ball actually reached the goal line, he pulled it back in to protect himself. And uh, I can't remember if that if that, you know, that touchdown was withdrawn, but uh, you know, the point that, that, that I took from that is this is a guy that is not playing with the kind of reckless abandon that he and, and every true competitor normally would. And so I, I, I really wonder, it, we'll never know, but how much in, you know, in pain, how much was Breeze hindered in this game? that really diminished the, the, the quality of his performance. And after a few months of healing, uh, recovery, maybe he's done or maybe he's got more left in the tank and he wants to keep chasing uh, old man Brady uh, for, for another year or two. So interesting storyline. And uh, I personally um, would, would love to see Drew Drew come back if that if that is what he wants to do. Let's look ahead to the NFC Championship game. The Packers versus the Bucks, another uh, matchup of Hall of Fame quarterbacks between Aaron Rodgers and the indefatigable Tom Brady. 
so since winning the Super Bowl 10 years ago, the Packers have lost the NFC Championship game three times. But as you mentioned, Zach, none of those were at Lambeau Field. All three were on the road. So does this Packers team feel different? And um, uh, of the four quarterbacks remaining, does Aaron Rodgers carry the most pressure with him into this game? A very good question, actually. I think that I think that the thing I'm looking at in this matchup is the Tampa defense we saw Sunday. I think the last time I can remember seeing that team look that good in against a quality opponent was in week six against the at the time undefeated Green Bay Packers. Green Bay goes up 10-0. Tampa Bay scores 38 straight. Rodgers throws two interceptions, his worst game of the season. Now, so, so, so that tells me that was the last time I saw them look this good. So we know, okay, they're capable of it. But I was talking to a coworker of mine. She's from Wisconsin. And we just lamented about, look, there's cold. And there is something about playing in that cold weather in Lambeau Field. Now, Tom Brady, who has played in New England his whole career, he'll be fine. But we got to remember, outside of Brady, a good vast majority of this team, this is their first playoff experience. They're used to that beautiful sunshine in Florida. Now they're going to have to go up to 10, uh, 15 degrees and possibly snowy Lambeau. And I think sometimes we don't take – I mean, we talked about earlier about how that the weather can play a factor. We talked about Baltimore-Buffalo. I don't think that can be understated, that if you're not used to having to deal with that type of cold – it's a very different ball game. You're going to Lambeau Field, and as you mentioned, Warren, fans will be in attendance, so this will be a home field advantage. I do think that this does just feel like a very different Packers team. This Packers team, let's not forget, last year they were in the NFC Championship game. They get annihilated. A few years before that, they're in the NFC Championship game at Atlanta. They get annihilated. A few years before that, they go to Seattle and lose in the most heartbreaking fashion when they couldn't recover an onside kick, and they had the game right there. So it's like they've had this heartbreak and and just embarrassment. But I feel like this Packers team, just when I look at them across the board between Rodgers, Aaron Jones, I trust him in the back, but I probably expect the – see LaFleur utilize him in some smart ways. And the other thing that I'm just amazed with is we talked about Adams. Look at the rest of Green Bay's weapons. You really look at any of them as like a Pro Bowl talent? Lazard, Valdez, Scantley, Tanya. I mean, they're pretty good. But with when number 12 is their quarterback, do they not look like, man, I want one of those guys. So yeah. I think if, if you have Tom Brady again, Brady is going to be fine in the cold. I don't think that's going to be the problem. How will his team respond to that? And also, will that defense be able to play to the level and caliber that they did last week and the way that they did against um, Green Bay in, in week six? But like I said earlier, my gut feeling is right now, I just think the Packers, they're just at a completely different level. And I do expect that defense to play a lot better. I think they played very well in the grand I don't think golf – I've never really been a golf fan to begin with. But – so, obviously, this will be a much bigger upgrade in quarterback play. But I expect the, I expect the Packers to come along, and I expect them to take this one. Zach, I'm, I'm with you 100% of the way on this. If uh, You know, we talked about the Tampa defense uh, this last week against the Saints. 
They're, they took over uh, the first turnover they forced. They gave Brady and the offense the ball on the three-yard line. Okay, three-yard scoring drive. A lot of teams can pull that off. <laughs> when, they, when they crushed the Packers, they did the same thing. The first touchdown drive they had was two yards. And, um, and you know, we, we, we just saw this story with, with Brady. Brady played one of the worst games of his life. Tampa Bay had one of the worst games that they've had against the Saints. They come back in this, this rematch, and they look totally differently. Aaron Rodgers played one of the worst games of his life against mm-hmm. Tampa Bay the first time that they played each other, got sacked four times through two picks. I just don't, I just don't see that uh, reenacting itself. I think uh, if you look at what Rodgers has done the rest of this year, he's given us now a 16-game sample size that says he's the best quarterback in the NFL and a one-game sample size in which he played terrible. I think we're much more likely to see that 16 game sample size in the rematch. And uh, if I'm wrong on this, I'll be happy to come on here and admit it and say, Hey, I didn't trust the Tampa defense enough. They came through. Um, But I do think that's worth pointing out is that even, even when they destroyed green Bay last time, Tom Brady still only threw for 166 yards. They're not asking Tom Brady to outduel Aaron Rodgers. They're going to be asking their defense to contain Aaron Rodgers, and I just I don't I don't see it happening to the degree that they needed to. Yeah, that's a great point, Mark. And you know, we've all referenced that uh, previous game between the Bucks and the Packers. And the interesting thing about that game is that it started off with the Packers easily marching right down the field and scoring a touchdown on their first drive, and then the wheels just fell off. And by the time they made heads and tails of what was going on. It was just beyond the point of return for, for the, the Packers. So I don't anticipate uh, it's, it's kind of like looking at that Browns Steelers game and, and saying, that's the game plan. You know, everything that could go wrong for the Packers uh, went wrong in that previous game. I don't anticipate that happening. You know, Zach, it's interesting that you mentioned that, that Brady is not going to have any problem with the cold. I don't know about that because first of all, Brady really struggled last year. I think, you know, father time, uh, he, he's, he's fighting a, a good fight, but that cold weather, there's a reason why old people move to the, to, to, to Florida when they retire. And uh, the other thing is you may remember back several years ago to a little Inc. New England Patriots controversy called, deflate gate and uh, that whole thing was built around the idea that by uh, slightly deflating the balls helped Tom Brady throw in the cold weather so if I'm a Packers uh, fan if I'm working on the field I'm definitely making sure that Brady's balls are fully inflated uh, on (laughs) on this game so you know he doesn't have the home field advantage at this time, so at least there's that that they have going for him. You you heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> if you're a Packers fan, you're checking Brady's balls regularly this weekend. Well, let's let's move on to uh, the final game, which is the AFC Championship game between the Chiefs versus the Bills. You've got the game's best quarterback uh, in question in Patrick Mahomes 
Will he be cleared from the concussion protocols and be able to play versus perhaps the, the, the most exciting new quarterback to really burst onto the scene with dominance this year in Josh Allen. If this is a Mahomes versus Allen game, how does that play out? But perhaps the, the second question is, if this is a Henny versus Allen game, what is the, the difference in the result? What do you guys think? Well, I think, obviously, your offense is going to look very – you're not going to be the same team if Patrick Mahomes is not going to start. Let, let, let's be clear about that, obviously. <laughs> Having said that, though, as Mark mentioned and as we talked about earlier, Henny has started in the past for these Chiefs. So there is a confidence that Reed and I believe his team does have in him. A second element to put in – the Chiefs' defense down the stretch last week, they clamped down, and when they need to stop the Browns, they stop the Browns. So the Chiefs' defense, they, they've really been able to kind of come together, and I think they would, they'll would they be a difference maker as well. I think if it's Mahomes-Allen um, and Mahomes is, is out there, you know, we talked about last week how Cleveland's best bet was going to be to try to make this an ugly game. Buffalo, the way that they've kind of shown themselves, they've shown themselves that, hey, if we got to get into a shootout, we're ready. Now, do they have the weapons that Kansas City has? No, I don't think they do. But, again, you talked about earlier, Warren, how they feel like we can go in there and we can win any type of game if we need to. So I think that's going to be an interesting element. If Henny is the one that has to start, like I said, I don't think that there's this, oh, woe is us. I think the Chiefs legitimately believe if Jad Henney is our quarterback, he can lead us to the, the Super Bowl. You know, I don't think this is going to be the Eagles situation where, let's say, Henney gets on a magical carpet ride, and then they're asking, who do we keep? I think that, that ship has sailed long ago, obviously. But that'll be the interesting thing. If, if this one, I feel, is much closer to a toss-up than the NFC Championship game, personally – but I, I, I still believe if Mahomes plays, I think it'll be close, and I think the Chiefs pull it out. If Henny plays, I, I think it leans a little more towards a, a flip of a coin. But just looking at the way the Chiefs perform and that home field advantage, because that Arrowhead Stadium crowd, you know, whoever, however many people they're going to have is going to be rocking. I'm gonna res I'm gonna lean on the Chiefs' championship pedigree that they've built. Buffalo is obviously heading in the right direction. I believe they will be a force in the AFC for many years to come. But I'm gonna just have to slightly give the edge to the Chiefs in this one. Yeah, I think I'm I'm with you, Zach. I uh, I I have such a heart for. Uh, for rooting for a backup quarterback when they're in there uh, that there's almost part of me. I, I love Patrick Mahomes. Um, so I certainly don't want him to, you know, suffer or anything like that, but there's almost part of me that just wants to see Chad Henney have that shot just because it makes for an interesting uh, storyline. There is kind of a weird thing. I think um, we saw, we saw it in the, uh, in the, um, in the, in the Browns game, when Henny came in, you kind of heard Tony Romo talk about it where he said, 
basically that, oh, this is a game now. The Browns have a chance. The Browns have some new life. You know, mm-hmm. you, you want the best for Mahomes, but like if you're the Browns, yeah. you're looking at the back of quarterback on the other side and you're going, we have a shot here. And that happens, I think, in the middle of a game when you see a quarterback go down. If, if Henny comes out for the opening snap, though, what I'd be a little more concerned about is does Buffalo almost relax a little too much? Mm. Uh, because you do see this sometimes with, um, with in athletics where if a team is not at full strength, the team that's playing them almost lessens up their intensity just a hair. Whereas if, if Mahomes is coming out for the opening snap, Buffalo is going to be rabid. They're going to be getting after him. They're, you know, they're going to want to shut this offense down. Um, but I, I almost wonder if, if there can be kind of that, that psychological game that's played where it's like, oh, it's just Chad Henney. We should be fine. Um, not that anybody on Buffalo would put it in those terms, but sometimes the play kind of resembles a little bit of complacency in those moments. So I think uh, it could, could be really interesting if, if that's the case. Yeah, you know, I, I get that point. But I also think conversely, you know, what we've seen a lot of times over the years is uh, a backup quarterback comes in to finish a game for an injured starter and then the following week really struggles because now the opposing defense has had a whole week to prepare for Henny. And yeah. you know, I, I could I could very much see that scenario playing out where, you know, when you're the backup quarterback, nobody's prepared for you. They haven't studied your tendencies. They don't really know what kind of an offense that that you know Reed is going to try it out with you. But now uh, there's tape and there's there's time to prepare. Obviously, they're going to prepare for Mahomes and Henny, but um, it could be a miraculous story if if Henny goes in there and finds a way to win. Uh, it could be a really ugly outcome for the Chiefs and extremely disappointing. And one of the things that Mark and I uh, we were texting about during the game is that. With the concussion protocols in the NFL and college football now, I think it's an interesting dynamic because if there were any other kind of injury, um, there's the potential for a quarterback to tough it out, to tape it up, to get the shots that you need uh, to, 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 to go in there and play a heroic game. But with the the concussion protocols the decision to play is completely out of Mahomes's hands there's nothing that he can do to influence the coach to allow him to play and so it's going to be decided by the doctors whether or not he gets to play and that's just an interesting dynamic that you know when you look back on uh, some of the, the the performances of of guys in the seventies and the eighties that probably had their bell rung multiple times, came back and played in those games. Now that type of scenario is not even in the realm of possibility and true, truly for the betterment of the game. But um, it, I, I can't think, and maybe you guys can, can remember for me, but I can't think of a time when a star player was withheld from a game for a concussion in a game of this magnitude. I can't think of a concussion. Um, Yeah, I can't think of that. And especially in this situation, when I watch Mahomes, you know, come off the field, 
he looked like you know a boxer that just got that just got knocked out. Like he did. Like because sometimes I was actually talking to, to Mike, our pastor. I was talking to him about this. Like sometimes you know a player like he just leaves the field or whatever, and you're like, oh, where did he go? And then it turns out he's in the tent, and they go, oh, well, he had a concussion. You sometimes like where that even happened? Yeah. You can't hide this one. Like you can clearly see that dude got his bell rung. And so now it's a big, big question of, you know, everybody with a clear eye saw that man and saw that man was clearly concussed. So it's a very interesting thing. But like you said, I can't think of an occasion where a game of this magnitude, um, obviously, if it's Mahomes, Mahomes is going to be like, yeah, I'm good to go out there. But that's why in this situation, you have to take it out of his hands and you have to um, you have to consult a doctor to make sure because ultimately, if you're the Chiefs, okay, yes, I want Mahomes for this game, but do I want to risk damage to this guy that it clearly is my future of the franchise? So, yes, I want to have him for this Super Bowl run potentially, but I would rather have him ready for 10, 15 other Super Bowl runs down the line. So that's the other thing that you got away with that. And so it's, it's definitely going to be a very interesting thing to observe as we go along this week. Yep, so uh, we're looking forward to a great weekend of championship football. Next week on the show, we'll talk about some of the non-game topics like uh, the coaching carousel, guys like Urban Meyer coming in, others that may be going out, free agents, the Hall of Fame selection, and uh, what is it currently, the Deshaun Watson drama. So stick around for that. Uh, But Zach, thanks for being on the show. Look forward to having you back uh, next week to continue talking NFL. Uh, But with that, we're going to wrap it up and uh, we'll, we'll take a break before our final segment. And welcome back to the Dog and Duck Show. Time to wrap up our show with the stat of the week, Mark's moment, and of course, P-Dub's part, parting shot. So Mark, you've got the stat of the week for us. Why don't you share it with, it, share it with us? Well, you, you and Zach were talking about how, how Tom Brady does in the cold. I think that leads to a bigger question of how do the Tampa Bay Buccaneers do in the cold? Remember, the Buccaneers used to be division rivals with uh, the Packers, and so they would play twice a year, and that meant Oftentimes, Tampa Bay going up to the cold of Lambeau Field, Green Bay coming down to the warm Tampa weather. Brett Favre notoriously struggled playing in Tampa. Uh, mm-hmm. Tom Brady had similar issues in Miami when he played in New England. Like it just sometimes those those weather weather things, uh, you go mm-hmm. into a different different uh, climate than you're used to, and you struggle. Well, that certainly applies to this rivalry between these two teams since 1990. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers have played in Green Bay 16 times, and they are 1-15 and 15 in that stretch. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, that, that leaves much to be desired if you're a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan today. Right? Yeah. So I, I, yeah. I thought, well, maybe it was the Super Bowl team that did it. Maybe that would be a good referee. It was actually a couple years after this, the Super Bowl team – did not play in, in Green Bay. So that must have been after they were in the same division anymore. They just played mm-hmm. them once. But then in 2005, they went up there and they won in Green Bay. So credit to that uh, that 2005 Buccaneers team making history by winning at Lambeau Field. 
That's pretty impressive. Nice stat. All right, well, give us your uh, Mark's moment for the show. Well, we, you know, we've sp- we spent a while talking about Chad Henney uh, specifically coming into that game and how he's going to do against Buffalo if he has to play and all that. But I, I just wanted to kind of – sometimes when we, when we speak about a guy who comes in for a certain moment, I like to just kind of pull back and uh, kind of identify their place in the, in the history of the game. We did that last week with Marquise Pouncey, and Chad Henney is a great figure for us to do that with. Um, as you know, Warren – Chad Henney, a great quarterback uh, at the University of Michigan, a four-year starter at the University of Michigan, and one of just my favorite college careers in terms of if you look over those four years, he was involved in so many memorable moments for one guy's career. His freshman year, Michigan went to the Rose Bowl. They played Vince Young's Texas team in the Rose Bowl. This was the year before Vince Young led Texas to the national title. Texas ended up beating Michigan in a thrilling Rose Bowl 38 to 37 with the young Vince Young against the young Chad Henney. So that was that was our kind of our introduction to Chad Henney. Uh, his sophomore year, they they played a game against Penn State. This was the last great Penn State team that Joe Paterno coached. And Michigan beat them on a last second touchdown pass. Chad Henney to Mario Manningham on the last play of the game. It was the only loss of the season for that Nittany Lions team. So a great moment there that Chad Henney was involved in his sophomore year. His junior year, Michigan started out 11-0. They entered that final game against Ohio State. Those two teams were ranked 1-2 and in the country. It was called the Game of the Century uh, that week before legendary Michigan coach Bo Schembechler actually passed away so there was like all of this attention drawn to this game and what the outcome would be the Wolverines ended up losing that game uh 42 to 39 but it's it's one of kind of the signature regular season games of that era that people really uh paid a lot a lot of attention to and then in Chad Henney's senior year uh you pointed this out to me in a in a text on uh during the game is uh he lost the opener to Appalachian State the famous famous Mm -hmm. loss for Michigan. I remember that, of course, because the next week at the big house, Oregon came in and, and beat Michigan, gave them an 0-2 start, which was uh, seriously demoralizing for the Michigan fans. But they rallied. Chad Henney's senior year. Michael Hart was the running back on that team his senior year. They had an eight-game winning streak. They ended up uh, playing in a New Year's Day Bowl against Heisman winner Tim Tebow in Florida. They beat Florida 41-35. to a thoroughly entertaining bowl game. It ended up being Lloyd Carr's last game as the Michigan head coach. So just in that, that, uh, that cluster of seasons, Chad Henney was involved in some remarkable moments, both on the winning end and the losing end in the history of, of Michigan football. And like you said, I kind of forgot Chad Henney was even around in the NFL. He was drafted by the Dolphins, uh, he spent most of his career in Miami or Jacksonville. He was backing up the likes of Chad Pennington, Matt Moore, Blaine Gabbert, Blake Bortles, uh, a career record of 18 and 36 as a starter when he was given the opportunity to start. He had never appeared in a playoff game before coming in uh, in relief of Patrick Mahomes this past weekend. So here is Chad Henney. He's, he's spent a career – uh, just kind of struggling to stay on a roster and he's given his, his potentially maybe his only moment to kind of find some sort of playoff glory 
and he comes through, has that great scramble on third and long, diving for the first down, and then comes through completing that final pass to run out the clock. So even if Mahomes comes back, and that's the last kind of memorable Chad Henney moment, uh, just wanted mm-hmm. to take a moment to highlight just a really memorable football career, both in college and now uh, he adds to that with an NFL moment. So uh, hats off to Chad Henney. Good word, Mark. Good word. And, and, you know, to your point, I mean, Chad Henney did have a very accomplished college career. And the guy has over 13,000 passing yards in the NFL. You know, he's, he's been a starter. Uh, he's, he's put up some decent seasons, but particularly with the Miami Dolphins. And, um, you know, he's got nothing to hang his head about when he looks back on his NFL career, what he accomplished in the game this past weekend, what he may or may not end up accomplishing uh, this weekend. will do nothing to um, really diminish uh, the, the, the accomplishments that he's made thus far in his NFL career. So as I finish up with my uh, P-dubs, parting shot i might call this last segment if this is the end (laughs) if this is the end for larry fitzgerald the hall of fame to be wide receiver for the arizona cardinals i think we can look back on one of the truly most remarkable uh NFL football players of all time, Uh, perhaps the greatest wide receiver not named Jerry Rice to ever play the game, a guy who was renowned for his work ethic, his professionalism, his character, the way that he uh, handles himself on and off the field, truly uh, one of the most respected and adored fans, a guy that uh, came out of the college ranks with Pitt with a lot of expectations, many saying that he was uh, the next Randy Moss to exceed those expectations, uh, to have a, a remarkable career in, a, in a, uh, an age of free agency, of team hopping, to stay with the team that drafted him for the entirety of his career, uh, to be able to change and reinvent himself over his career from being a number one outside receiver to uh, a slot receiver and more of a third down receiver in the later parts of his career, Larry Fitzgerald is certainly one to be celebrated. And if this is the end, for Drew Brees, a guy that uh, in 2001 found himself playing in the Rose Bowl against my beloved Washington Huskies, going up against uh, Husky legend Marcus Tuiasosopo, who's been out of the league for more than a decade now and in the coaching ranks himself. I had no idea how good this guy would be. Of course, he went on to star with the Chargers. After suffering a shoulder injury, he was traded away so that the Chargers could uh, put Phillip Rivers 
into that starting place. The New Orleans Saints uh, took a chance on uh, Drew Brees, and it paid off with uh, the truly the most uh, remarkable career that uh, you could have imagined for a guy of Drew Brees's stature and and size. He really became the prototype for Russell Wilson and other quarterbacks who are under that six foot range. And um, again, a man of incredible class, professionalism, above reproach, uh, truly two of the greatest uh, role models and players that the game has ever known. And it could be the end for both of them. So if this is the end, I say to you, Drew Brees and Larry Fitzgerald, well done and thank you. Well said. Well, with that, we will wrap things up. We hope you'll continue to join us on the Dog and Duck Show. Subscribe, share, tell your friends about us. We'd love to, to, to continue to get the word out about the show. But thank you again for joining us. And we'll, we'll join you next week on the Dog and Duck Show. For all my dogs out there, I'm Warren. And for all the ducks, I'm Mark. <laughs> all right. Have a, have a great week.